Hi, this is Paula. And I'm Joseph, and you're listening to Life Lived Better. Oh, it's that time again. Questions for counselors. One of my favorites. We got a whole new group of students up on campus, so we have a whole new group of questions. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's jump in. Question number one, how does trauma throughout one's life affect one's susceptibility to addiction? Well, and we have an entire episode devoted to trauma. So I think- And addiction. Yes, we do. We actually do. And so uh, episode 11 in this season, season two is all about trauma. And I think we talk a lot about how trauma affects um, addiction. So without a doubt, you know, Yes, trauma throughout childhood does increase susceptibility to addiction. Doesn't guarantee addiction is going to happen, but we do know now that trauma is definitely a major factor uh, when it comes to addiction or past trauma. And there's like lots of statistics out there. Some of the statistics that I've looked at recently say that like 25 people, 25% Some of them say as high as 75% of people who have uh, past abuse, violent trauma in their past, you know, have some sort of addiction. That's a lot of people, you know? Yeah, it is. And and some of the research is taught, it talks about the brain, how like when we're children, especially because our brain's developing at that time, that the trauma that a child experiences, you know, it takes a direct hit on the brain. So the Mm. parts of your brain, the parts of your brain that are developing during childhood get impacted. Like the part of your brain that detects threats might get overreactive, you know, throughout your life because it had trauma and it's, so it's, flight or fight, flight or fight, you know, constantly. Mm -hmm. And then the part that processes your memories can get underactive. So you can get caught in a cycle of uh, remembering and remembering and re-remembering the traumatic parts, Mm -hmm. you know, and then that executive functioning uh, part of our brain that makes our decisions like the logical ones that says, well, yeah, you may want that, but you can't have that piece of cake, you know, that is uh, interrupted because, we just want to survive. So we make decisions that, you know, are sometimes negative and they can become like, we can get to get into a cycle of not being able to stop them. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, (laughs) it does. And I just went back and looked. season one, episode 14 is our episode on addiction. And I think we really kind of break it down, you know, and talk about things that lead up to addiction. And I, I, the more trauma you experience, definitely the more likely you are to deal with an addiction issue. And again, addiction doesn't necessarily just mean drugs and alcohol, but mm-hmm. it can be, you know, anything that triggers that pleasure point in our brain. So it can be spending, it can be sex, it can be pornography, it can be gambling, it can mm-hmm. be a lot of different things. Good point. Um, I think we overlook that too often. Yeah. Well, here's a fantastic question for you. Student asks, what's the best way to keep a work-life balance? Because their biggest concern getting into the field is that it's going to take a toll on their mental health because it's really easy to say that you're not going to be impacted by it, but the work they've done in the past says it's pretty difficult to separate the two lives. Yeah, well, and it is. I mean, it's there's just no way around that. It's It is difficult to not carry 
some of that weight of the stuff that we hear that we listen to on a daily basis. But I think the more you do it, the better you get at being present, being available for your clients, but being able to disconnect and leave that at the office when you leave. You know, there are absolutely clients that I find myself thinking about home and, you know, running through scenarios or thing happens that reminds me of something that someone has told me. Um, or I think of like a creative solution or, you know, something that I want to address like in the next session. So that stuff's kind of always rolling around in my head personally, but it is something that in the very beginning, I really struggled with having that distance and that separation between home and work. But again, the the more you do it, I think the better you just you get at it. You have to or other, mm-hmm. otherwise you burn out or you just you leave the field because yeah. no one can be carrying all of that all the time for a long period of time. Yeah. And I think like anything else, it takes practice. So like if this person is not in the field right now, start taking care of yourself now, you know, start self-care as a priority in your life, because it, it is a learned behavior for many of us to stop putting other people and other things before ourselves and our own mental health. And completely, it takes practice I think most of the things I hear and read say about five years is where people either leave the field or find their knit, you know, kind of find their way. Mm. And so if you can just start practicing self-care today, it's not something you just start when you get in the field. It's a part of life in general. Yeah, that's a really good point. Really good point. Yeah. So number three this is an interesting one. Uh, have the effects of recreational gardening been studied in counseling? And how could you successfully introduce a client to a new hobby like gardening? Well, and isn't it interesting that they actually have been studied? Uh, huh. And I actually worked at a residential um, program that they had a lot of focus on the nutrition of their clients. And so they had an on-site garden and a chef that actually used the garden to prepare the meals for the clients. And the doctor and the chef that designed that menu, they do workshops for the clients all about nutrition and how to prepare your food for recovery. And the chef would take the clients out to the garden, show them the whole process, you know, so it was kind of like that from garden to table. I mean, it was pretty fascinating. If if student, I mean, if the clients had like a desire, he would even um, let them help him, you know, like that he would help them prepare a meal. So when they went home, they could you know, know how to do that. Cause there is a lot of research that says nutrition matters in recovery. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, one, a person that's actively in their addiction, they're not thinking about their nutrition. They're mm-hmm. also probably not eating well, if, if they're probably under eating in many times and, and then, or not eating the right things. And then also the substance just damages the body and the brain so much. And that's why it's important that we kind of look at that when people are getting into recovery. And there was a study, I can tell you that the faces and voices of recovery put it all together. I don't Mm -hmm. know if they're the ones who did the study, but I can find that out. And it's called the, it's called the science of recovery. And I took a several day course on this. It was pretty fascinating that they took people recovering from uh, the use of methamphetamines and they actually had PET scans that showed their brains like at admission to a treatment and then throughout their treatment and into their recovery and you can actually show 
it, I mean, you could see on the PET scans where the healing started in the brain. Mm. And it was a result of the exercise and the nutrition. And the nutrition was a factor. Then the physical exercise was a factor. But something else that was fascinating to me is that exercising the brain was a part of it, like um, crossword puzzles and other like problem solving kind of exercise that would create the firing in that synapse, you know, mm -hmm. that needed to start where you're where you're uh, you know your brain loses that uh when you're when you're when you're in addiction like the amphetamines would cause the brain to have that response so you mm -hmm. didn't have the response when you weren't using even like normal pleasure things wouldn't cause you to have the response methamphetamine the response was almost like triple or quadruple that of like orgasm it was wow. that the pleasure response. So that study was it was so fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, so that's the reason that nutrition, exercise and some sort of recreational activity is so important. So I mean, it, may, it doesn't have to be gardening, although I think gardening is pretty awesome. It doesn't have to be. But like in Texas, our residential treatment centers are required to provide a certain number of hours that are structured and supervised related to some sort of leisure activity so we can teach people to do hobbies and things whenever they uh, they're learning it in their treatment so when they get out of treatment they don't have the downtime because boredom definitely can cause someone to return to use and so doing something fun with your time it's good for your brain it's good for your body it's good for your recovery i'm sorry Never. i said so much I just get oh. excited about that particular, that that whole thing. It's amazing to me. Yeah, that's a pretty cool study. It's very cool. You know, I can understand how gardening specifically, I mean, just the, the relaxation and kind of the being out in the sun and, you know, everything that kind of comes along with that. I could see how that could be healthy, but also just other hobbies, things that you take time to, you know, dedicate time and energy to. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, that's I've read a lot of studies on, you know, brain, keeping your brain active because of my mom's Alzheimer's and problem solving puzzles and, mm -hmm. you know, word puzzles and different things like that. One of the things I do every day is the wordle every morning. I don't uh -huh. know if you've seen that, but a lot of people do it. But that's, you know, it, it really gets me thinking first thing in the morning. So, you know, anything you can do like that to keep your brain active, I think, is definitely time well spent. Is wordle one you can play against people you know? No, it's just something you do on your own that resets okay. every 24 hours. And it's like a five letter word. You okay. get six tries to guess the word and it gives you like you, you pick a word and it tells you if those letters are in the word. I do need to do can that. Rearrange them. And yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty fun. I have a couple of friends that I share it with. So we're all kind of like accountable to each other. And it's uh -huh. just it's fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, the gardening thing is, I think, well, the treatment center that did this, they it cost a lot of money to go there. But it doesn't matter how much a treatment center costs. You could be an outpatient program that just has a potted plant. You know, I mean, you can do something like this with your clients, no matter how much it costs to go to treatment. You know, that sounded real foo-foo when I was talking about it, but you can do it anywhere, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, the next question um, and it's one that like I have a lot of heated heated opinions on, but um, is it like how effective are addiction treatment centers? And the person asked this because they've 
read a lot of stories or heard a lot of stories about people who spend a lot of money, families send, send their folks to a facility. Sometimes they go into debt and then the person ends up, they use the word relapsing, but we now say recurrence of use, but you know, so they end up going back to use. So like, how effective are they? Complicated. Mm -hmm. I think there, there are studies that, you know, definitely support lots of different theories. And I personally believe that treatments as as successful as it can be with each individual depending on their willingness and you know where they're at in their journey if they're Mm -hmm. you know seeking treatment on their own if they're seeking treatment because their family or their work is requiring it like all those things factor into you know what success is and what is success what does that you know what does that mean um I think that's measured based on if you never use again and you know that's always the the goal right is to get somebody to a place that they don't they don't use going forward, but yeah, it's, uh, there's no, like, to me, there's no easy answer to that. I don't mm-hmm. know if you have, but what, what's your two cents, your two coins? Yeah. Well, and I, I, it's complex. I mean, that's my question too, is what do you mean by effective? You know, what are you measuring effectiveness from? What do you, what are the treatment centers that advertise their success rates? What do they measure success by? Because I think that matters. I used to measure the success for clients just based on black and white. Do you return to use or do you not? Which I don't think actually is what effectiveness or success is anymore. You know, that isn't, it's not that black and white. Uh, The definition of recovery doesn't even include abstinence as a part of it anymore. It's about the quality of life. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a person that's drinking every single day, and they leave treatment and drink once a week. Uh, is that effective? Well, it depends. I mean, it it's not. I mean, I don't. I don't get to decide for a person whether the quality of their life is increased or not. You know that I understand being a family member and not understanding addiction and having a person that I love go to treatment and I pay for that and then they return to use. How horrible that could feel. But we're all like kind of a work in progress. And because the person ends up returning to use doesn't necessarily mean that it was that, that it was all for nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, we kind of grow in spurts and, and we change over time. And I think treatment is effective. What I do want to put out there and what kind of heats me up is being cautious about when you see success rates claimed by treatment centers, because the state of Texas doesn't require treatment centers to stipulate what they're measuring their success by. So like we do have to follow up with a client whenever they're finished with treatment. Hard sometimes to get them on the phone. We have to try at least twice. And then the questions that we ask, we're not dictated what questions to ask. And we're just going on self-report. Most people aren't going to say, no, I'm actually doing horrible. They're usually going to say, yeah, I'm doing great. So Mm effectiveness and success it just it's we could talk for an entire episode about this topic honestly I think it's I always look at it like kind of planting a seed you know whether somebody recovers or they don't recover their quality of life changes or it doesn't it's information that it's like building your toolbox you know it's tools that you may not need today or tools that you may not apply today but you have them for the future mm-hmm. and yeah. you know that's kind of what recovery and counseling and 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 what that looks like to me is is just 
preparing yourself for the future and, you know, making changes where you can, but understanding, you know, the measurement of change is different based on each person. And, you know, it's just not a one size fits all kind of situation. Without a doubt. I, I think back to like when I was in school for addiction counseling, I had like a 3.96 GPA. I made one, <laughs> I made one B. Um, so someone would have described me as a, you know, successful student. I had no idea what some of the stuff that I was learning meant in practice until mm -hmm. I got into the field. And later I would be like, oh yeah, I remember learning about that that's how life goes. You know, mm. people can be in treatment and perform well, but not put to use that information till maybe five years down the road or, you know, we're just, it's, we're all on different journeys. Yeah. yeah. That's a very lengthy answer. I, re I realize. <laughs> it's okay. Do we have time for one more question? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, how do you get a loved one to recognize that they need counseling? Uh, I think just through, conversations and you know educating as, as much as you can without being intrusive or invasive just just talking through issues and and you know personally for me I share what I've learned through therapy and what I've learned through counseling and sometimes just sharing what I've learned helps other people to connect or see how that could be beneficial I've had people that have come into my office that have said, you know, I don't get therapy. I don't know what this is all about. You know, my wife told me I need to be here, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, so different strokes for different folks. Like it, it's it's one of those things. It's it's kind of like you, you hear me say all the time, like trust the process. You have to just kind of trust that, you know, the person's going to get what they need. Um, as far as talking someone into it or, you know, anything like that, I, 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 I just, I don't see that happening. I think just presenting people with the information, presenting people with the resources and then allowing them to make a choice. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. People aren't going to do what they aren't ready to do, what they don't no. want to do. They're no. just I mean, sometimes pointing things out, you know, helps people to recognize things and other times, you know, they don't, they're resistant to it. And so you can, you can try to delicately point things out. You can be very blunt and direct and point things out. But if a person is not at a, in a space where they are looking for change or seeing these things as a problem, then they're probably not going to seek out help. Completely. So our last question is, are counseling and psychology the same thing? Short answer is no. Psychology is the study of the mind the way the mind functions and counseling's like the process. It's the application of it. Yeah. That's the short answer. That sums it up. Well, and that concludes today's episode of questions for counselors. We hope you guys have enjoyed as always. Don't forget that knowledge leads to a life lived better. Thank you for listening to life lived better with Paula and Joseph. <laughs>